On one occasion, Jesus' disciples came to him and they asked him this question. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. After last Sunday's sermon, someone slipped me a note. You don't know, people do that to preachers sometimes. They just randomly walk up and they've jotted something down and they slipped me a note. Later, when I opened my Bible and I saw the note there that I had placed there, I read the words that reminded me that this is the only uh, request that disciples of Jesus ever ask of him. Isn't that interesting? Wisdom from uh, the people of God. Lord, teach us to pray, and I hope as we move through the beginning of this new year and we take these words and we own them again, as we pray them together again and again and again, as we see them represented, as you just saw them represented, that those words will begin to move you more deeply toward the God who loves us and has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. My prayer, my hope for us, is that we will begin to recognize that these words that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, teaches us to pray, are his gift to us. Of the many gifts of God's grace, these words are a gift to us. They are words from God that become the words on our own lips collectively together, prayed to God, words from God to God. And because they're from God, they are God's gift to us. And as we pray them, speak them back toward God, whom we address, they form us. They are words that we say so that our hearts are tuned to beat one with God's heart. And it's easy for our collective spiritual heart to get out of rhythm. And so we say them again and again and again so that our heart might beat one with God's heart. We pray them so that we are formed to care about the things that God cares about. Because it's easy for us to begin to get preoccupied and care about all sorts of things that are pressing and and we give them all kinds of weight in our lives and in our consciousness. And so we come back to this prayer so that we might care and think on the things that God cares about most. We say these words, the simple practice of saying them, not just individually, but collectively again and again and again. The practice of saying these things means that something is being written on our hearts. The life of God is being inscribed in us. There's nothing more important than that. The life of God inscribed in us. Thanks be to God for this gift. Let us pray. Oh God, as we gather uh, and assemble in this place and turn our hearts and our faces more fully toward you, we pray that you will be glorified. We pray, Father, that you would do your work in us we pray that as we gather around your word and we open it and we listen to the story that it tells, that as we sit with it, that it might, by the power of your spirit, penetrate deep into our hearts, that your life might be inscribed upon us. Oh God, we proclaim that you are holy and there is none like you. 
Bless your people gathered around your word today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so the prayer begins like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. Our Father in heaven, holy is how the prayer begins. We may say this over and over as we take it up and say it over and over as we have heard it prayed before and referenced it before. It may be easy to kind of slide into this prayer that Jesus gives us as gift. To kind of ease our way in. It's the, oh yeah, yeah, let me catch up. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's how it begins. We pray the Our Father. We may not really lock in to the prayer on our own lips until later in the prayer, maybe when we get to that, give us our daily bread part. Yes, I'm interested in that. My stomach, my body reminds me, that's a good thing. Give us today our daily bread. But the power of this prayer in its opening words is that it draws our attention to the holiness of God again no matter what angle we come to the moment or to the prayer from. Whether we slide into it uh, from the side, from the left or from the right, we kind of walk into this in the ordinary mundaneness of our lives. It calls us back, it turns us back again to the holiness of God. Or whether we come at it from below, you know what I mean by that? There are just some moments where our hearts are heavy and we are, our souls are downcast and trodden, to use a little more archaic language. You just feel blue. And things get hard. I mean, I don't know how... I, I'm feeling the need to just acknowledge that as... We turn into this new year with all the hope that a new year brings. We are still yet wrestling through, still praying for our own people at home or in hospital because of this virus. And then on top of that, the flu. And then on top of that, all the other stuff we deal with. I mean, come on, enough, God. We've had enough. Our hearts turn down, and we come to this prayer sometimes from the ordinariness, the routineness, well, I'm, we're just kind of going through the motions from the side, or sometimes we come to this prayer from below. When we come to it be from below, the prayer reaches down, and the prayer grabs us in its opening words, and it turns our attention up again, back toward the God who is holy. Or, or maybe we come to the prayer from above, and by that I mean we just feel like, Man, I'm rocking it. <laughs> Things are going great. Life is good, and we can even be tempted to think a little more of ourselves than we should. We come to this moment, these first words of the prayer, from that place, and the prayer draws us back again to the God who loves us and who created us. It turns our attention back to the holiness of God. Our Father in heaven 
holy. Our Father in heaven, holy. That move to the holiness of God is written in our DNA. Really, if you're among the people of God or claim to be among the people of God, or you've just sort of sojourned for a while, wandered in among the people of God, you will notice that in the DNA of God's people, meaning passed down from generation to generation to generation, going way back to the beginnings, is this notion of the holiness of God. Do you know the first place among God's people in the story of God uh, that's told to us in Scripture from the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament forward, the first place where the holiness, the, the mention of holy is, is, uh, uh, occurs? Do you know where this is anyone by chance? It's in the creation story, so that's great. <laughs> but maybe not where you think. It's at the end of creation, Genesis 2 says. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, so on the seventh day God rested, and he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It's the first place in the story of Scripture that holiness, uh, holy is mentioned. God, who created all things, is the origin of all things and the sustainer and the giver of life to all things, stepped back when it was all complete and took it all in and rested and said that day, the day to rest, not just to rest, but to take in the goodness of the whole creation, that day will be called holy, set apart. And do you know that the next place that the holiness of God is mentioned is in this passage that was read for us this morning from Exodus 3, where God's people, whom he's called through Abraham, have found themselves under the oppression of Pharaoh and Egypt. And God says, I will not let it stand, and he's going to call forth a leader to set the world right, to set his people right, to bring justice to the oppressed. And that it's Moses, as he's out uh, in the fields of his father Jethro, that notices a bush that burns. But it does not burn up. I want to say this, a little note. In that part of the world, the, the notion of a combustible bush, we think is, that's the miracle. It's this bush that caught on fire, and it caught Moses' attention. Actually, no. Not so uncommon experience. It's dry, it's arid, the sun reflects in the right way, and much as you might expect, there might be a, a tuft of a bush that then ignites and burns and then burns itself down and it's gone. But what Moses noticed among the occurrence of this is that when this bush ignited and burned and he caught his attention and he turned to look at it, what? It did not burn. It didn't burn up. It was not consumed. It continued to burn so much so that it drew him to it. And as it drew him to it, this extraordinary uh, occurrence in the midst of the ordinary, a voice, the voice of God, he encountered God in the burning of the bush. And the first instructions were, Moses, take off your sandals. Because the place where you stand is holy. 
This encounter, this moment is holy. Right? Note this. That in the experience, in the story of God's people, the two places in the grand story of God where the notion of the holy occurs is first in the creation, in the sanctification, which means to make holy, the sanctification of time. Set apart this day in the rhythm of life, sanctify this time and call it holy. The other days may be ordinary, but this day is holy, right? Are you with me? It's in the sanctification of time, and then in the second instance, in Exodus 3 with Moses in the bush, it's in the sanctification of what? Come on, you can do this. Place. The the words literally are, hey Moses, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy. The sanctification of place. From that moment, the notion of the sacred and the holy permeates the consciousness of the people of God. There there are ordinary moments and there are holy, sacred moments, right? We might call this ordinary time and sacred time. And in the consciousness of the people of God, there is... Ordinary places, common places, we use the phrase, that's commonplace, right? You know where that comes from now. It's common, ordinary place. But, oh, this is set apart. This place is holy, a holy place. Set up some stones here. God will instruct his people. Set up some stones here, and this place, Mark the place because it's holy. Why? Because God was here and God did something here. It's a holy place. Sanctification of time and sanctification of place, dividing the ordinary from the sacred. It's little wonder that God's people take so seriously Sabbath in the Old Testament. Do you remember how how bent out of shape that people got when their notions of the Sabbath seemed to be violated? Right? Why? Why? This is, this is big business. This is connected to the holiness of God. It's little wonder that they're so concerned about Sabbath and they're concerned about, in the other instance, temple. Where's the temple of the Lord? The temple of the Lord. Let's go up to the temple of the Lord. They're preoccupied by these things because they carry, they are carriers of this sense, this notion of the holiness of God. All of the purity laws and purity rituals that you find in the people of God in the Old Testaments are tied to this notion of being holy. God is holy, set apart, sanctified, so we must be holy people, set apart, sanctified, right? But here's the thing. Stay with me. Listen to the prayer that Jesus gives us in its opening words. Listen to what he does. Before we declare God holy, holy is your name, we address God in this way. Father in heaven. Right? Our Father in heaven. The prayer says, in the first move of the prayer, in our first utterance of the prayer, that God is addressed as holy transcendent. In heaven. 
above us, beyond us, mysterious, not like us. We are not God. He is God. He is holy, transcendent. He is God in heaven. And it addresses God as holy, imminent, near. Our Father. Imminent. Can you imagine the people in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament? They wouldn't even speak the name of God. To address Him as Father? It's to, it, it collides with this notion of the transcendence, the mystery of God, the beyondness of God. It is, these, these two things are in juxtaposition, right? God is imminent beyond us, and yet he's near, he's so close, he's like a father who holds us. It's these two things that the prayer, when we say them, our father in heaven, collides together. And I want you to know this, we're going to, this is a little bit of a, Teaching segment of the sermon. See how he moves to the other side of the stage. I don't know why. <laughs> Teaching segment of the sermon. That in the grand history, uh, uh, tradition of Christian history, in the different streams of the Christian tradition, an emphasis upon either God's transcendence, beyondness, or God's imminence, his nearness, is played out. It's like it's, it's not all one or the other, but different traditions emphasize different things. Think about this for a moment. It's played out in the hymns that have been written in Christian history, the songs that we sing. We either emphasize the transcendence of God or the nearness of God. Can you think of a hymn emphasizing the transcendence of God? It will be harder for you to think of that one because our particular tradition, stream, leans more towards the nearness of God than we do the transcendence, but yet we sing songs like this one. God moves in a mysterious way. Have you heard this hymn? His wonders to perform. God moves in a mysterious way. He's beyond us. It's mysterious. We don't understand God's ways, and yet He is God. He is holy. He is other, and we want Him to be holy other. We don't want a God like us. We need a God who is wholly transcendent. We sing songs like that, and then we also sing songs that sometimes shape us to think of God as being very near, right? When I was a kid, maybe for you too, we sang this little song that went, my best friend, Jesus is my best friend. Do you remember the, did you, anybody else? Jesus is my best friend. I am not alone. I am not alone. We'd sing, he's my comforter, and then he's my nightlight which was great when you're a kid because the darkness is scary and mysterious, but Jesus is light, near. You hear the difference? Uh, this is a little fun thing for those of you who, who uh, like to uh, be entertained with different thoughts. Think about how many songs we sing as we sing them. Emphasize the transcendence of God and how many songs we sing emphasize the nearness of God. I would suggest to you that we lean in all of the different streams of Christian tradition and Christian history, we lean more towards emphasizing the nearness of God, right? It's played out in architecture. Do, are there any architects, designers, anybody in the congregation who does that sort of thing? Sort of, sort of. The, the spaces that we inhabit, inhabit are not neutral. 
Builders know this. They're designed not only to be beautiful or functional, but to carry meaning in many cases, right, Or To carry meaning. We incorporate things that carry meaning. How many of you have ever been in a cathedral? Ever visited a cathedral? What's your experience of walking into a cathedral? When people are visiting a cathedral, not, let's say it's not for a worship service or something like that, but it's just to visit, have you ever noticed everyone walks around whispering? <laughs> Why are they whispering? Reverence. Reverence. Because the architecture itself lifts the horizon. These majestic open spaces, the stained glass, the beauty and the wonder of it all. Now, tell me, is that emphasizing that architect, architecture? Is that emphasizing transcendence or eminence? Speak, church. Transcendence. How many churches do you walk into the worship centers and the ceilings are flat? Even if they're high, they're flat. They have no pitch. You see what's going on? I'm telling you, trust me, um, they carry theological freight that shapes whether you're aware of it or not, how you think about God. We can move into a space one way or the other where we, we understand God to either be so distant, mysterious, we can hardly approach Him, or God to be so near us that He might as well just be us. You see the danger. Well, this prayer, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, in its opening words, we are saying both about God in His holiness. He is our Father. He is near. He is in heaven. He is transcendent. We are holding both together in the first few words of this prayer that form us and give us life. They are held together inseparably. And if the prayer begins like this, is etched into our hearts in this kind of way, it awakens us to the mystery of God in the midst of every moment and everything. Someone gifted me this not uh, year, a couple of years ago. This resource, it's called Every Moment Holy. You might think that would be a good resource to bring to a sermon like this. Every Moment Holy. And I just want to share the opening words in the, in the introduction to this resource. You'll see them on the screen. The opening quote, where it's actually in this book, are uh, words of Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry wrote, there are no unsacred places. Only sacred places and desecrated places. There are no unsacred moments, times. You see? Place and time. There are only sacred moments and moments that we have forgotten are sacred. If that's true then it's our duty to reclaim the sacredness of our lives, of life itself. And the first step is to remember, to remember the dream of Eden that shimmers at the edge of things. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? To reclaim this notion, we say this prayer to remember that every moment is holy. That the life of God infuses all things in all people and all places. The life of God infuses those things. Now, I want to say this. That it's important 
insofar as we set aside place and time, like this morning, this assembly, that that function of that is to remind us to come together, to remember, to say these words again in our worship so that we remember the sacredness of all things. Another favorite author of mine is Barbara Brown Taylor, who wrote this book, An Altar in the World. And Taylor says, Earth is so thick with divine possibility that it's a wonder we can walk anywhere without cracking our shins on altars. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? Earth is so thick with divine possibility. Eden. What God intended in the beginning. That it's a wonder that we can walk anywhere with cracking our shins on altars. To pray this prayer is to be formed as people who awaken to the wonder of the divine, the spark of the divine in all things and in all people. God who created us and all people and all things has imbued us and the whole creation with his wonder and his glory. Our Father, you are holy. In your nearness to us, you are holy. Our Father in heaven, in your transcendence, in your wonder, you are above and beyond all things. We hold the two together, the holy, mysterious God with us and in all things. Brother Lawrence was a 17th century monk. Any of you ever heard of Brother Lawrence? You know, in your study of 17th century monks. And he had this observation as he came. His own journey to deepen his life with God is that religion comes up with all kinds of devices to bend us toward God, which is a good thing, right? To be bent toward God. But the genius of his observation and his life was that those things, in their good intent to bend us toward God, we begin to believe are the only things that bend us toward God. If you want to find God, go to church. If you want to find God, then do these things. If you want to know the holy, then do these things. And which is, those are good invitations and gifts, right? But it tends to move us in ways that turn us away from noticing God in all things. And so Brother Lawrence assigned to the monastery kitchen, believed that every task and every moment was the medium of God's love. Let me just say that again. Every task and every moment, the medium of God's love. When he took up the dishes to wash them for his brothers, he believed that was a moment to experience and to know the presence of God, the practice of the presence of God in the ordinary things, in the ordinary moments, in the ordinary places. He believed God was found in those places in he prayed the prayer, I'm certain of it. Our Father, near. In heaven, holy transcendent. Holy among us. And we pray the prayer because we must. It's essential. It's pure gift. Otherwise, I will wake each morning and I will miss God in the most ordinary task. And you will too. You will get up and you will go about your day and your rhythms 
And at some point it may dawn on you to think of God, but you will. the prayer invites us in each waking moment to embrace the presence of God in the most ordinary of tasks. Otherwise, if, if in the absence of us praying this prayer in this, these opening lines, we will interact with those, some of whom we love dearly and others of whom we think we just have to tolerate. We will interact with others and miss God in the wonder of the other person whom God created. We will just see them as a nuisance or a means to some other ends for ourselves. We will miss the wonder and the majesty of God the spark of life in the creator who created every single individual. We will miss it. We pray this prayer so that we don't miss it. We don't miss the moment. We don't miss the person. We pray this prayer because it is too easy for us to slide into a lazy faith that easily divides the world into sacred and secular. You understand that that's a lazy faith, right? And that churches and Christians, especially these days, without any depth of the Spirit, just say, well, that is secular. But we are holy and sacred. It's possible that out there in the midst, it's tangled up, but out there in the midst of everything that we think is ordinary and secular, there's the spark of God's life. It's a lazy faith to just divide the world up like that. And so we pray the prayer so that we might seek and know the divine. We say, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. And we are awakened to the presence of God in each moment. We say the prayer that God has given us so that we might know the holy in every moment and in every place and in every person. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, turn our hearts back to you again. We take just a moment to thank you for these words that we've already taken up together and prayed together. We come to you, our Father, beyond us in the heavens and above all creation and yet among us. And we say, holy is your name. You are holy, God. And we pray that having said it, that by your spirit it might echo and resonate within us, it might be written deep on our hearts, so that in each moment, as we rise from our seats to sing these songs and to gather at this table as we leave this place and interact with each other as we move into life, that we might be captivated in wonder of your holiness and your majesty. Draw us deeper into your life, and deeper into your love, and deeper into your holiness, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.